Peace be upon you. In chapter 4, verse 105, we read, We have sent down to you the scripture truthfully in order to judge among the people in accordance with what God has shown you. You shall not side with the betrayers. One of the duties of the submitter is that we're going to have to judge. I mean, obviously we judge in our own day-to-day activities, but occasionally we're going to have to judge the disputes of others. People are going to come to us and they're going to ask for our judgment. And this is not something that we should be taking lightly. It comes with a lot of responsibility. And um, a lot of times we're quick to, to uh, jump to conclusions, uh, to be so firm in our convictions, in our judgments, uh, that we might be making an error. And a perfect example of this is in the example of David from chapter 38. In uh, 38.21 it reads, Have you received the news of the feuding men who sneaked into a sanctuary? When they entered his room, he was uh, startled. They said, Have no fear, we are feuding with one another, and we are seeking your fair judgment. Do not wrong us and guide us in the right path. This brother of mine owns 99 sheep, while I own one sheep. He wants to mix my sheep with his and continues to pressure me. He said, so this is David's response, He is being unfair to you by asking to combine your sheep with his. Most people who combine their properties treat each other unfairly, except those who believe and work righteousness, and these are so few. Afterwards, David wondered if he made the right judgment. He thought that we were testing him. He then implored his Lord for forgiveness, bowed down, and repented. We forgave him in this matter. We have granted him a position of honor with us and a beautiful abode. Now, we can tell chronically, I believe it's according to uh, chapter 4, verse 12, it says only mutually acceptable transactions are permitted. Meaning that if the brother, one brother did not want to follow through with that transaction, therefore it's in his right to say, I don't want to combine my property. And in addition, we have historical examples. I mean, you look at communism. People who combine their properties typically do treat each other unfairly. But somewhere in that judgment, David might have had one iota of a personal opinion, and it was enough for him to think twice and implore God for forgiveness. And it continues in 3826, says, O David, we have made you a ruler on earth. Therefore, you shall judge among the people equitably and do not follow your personal opinion lest it diverts you from the way of God. Surely those who stray off the way of God incur severe retribution for forgetting the day of reckoning. And in the footnote it reads, In this clear example, 99 on one side, verse 1 on the other side, David's extreme care to render the correct judgment caused him to ask forgiveness. Are we this careful? And that's really the, uh, the, the zinger here. Are we this careful when we render a judgment? You know, uh, you hear these cases of people who were wrongly uh, convicted, sent to prison for years, only to find out later that, you know, due to DNA evidence or some other uh, uh, circumstantial evidence, that they were left off, uh, they're off the hook, that they actually didn't commit the crime. Now, this is a severe case, but everything time we make a judgment in the regards to the disputes, the character of someone else, we have the possibility of committing sin. God goes so far that in 49.12 says, O you who believe, you shall avoid any suspicion for even a little bit of suspicion is sinful. Meaning that if we have the wrong thoughts about someone, that's enough for us to be committing sin. And this is the reason that we have to continuously repent because we're not perfect in that regard. But it's one of these things to be conscientious of so we don't make the wrong judgment. And how do we make judgments without putting our personal opinion? I want to look at some of the examples from the, uh, the Quran and the Bible and uh, ways that we might be able to apply to our day-to-day life to eliminate this personal bias. One of my favorite examples comes from the, uh, the Bible in uh, Genesis chapter 13. It's in regards to uh, Abraham and Lot. 
And uh, what was happening was uh, Abraham and Lot, they had two flocks that were really growing, and uh, it was causing disputes among their uh, their people. And uh, Abraham, noticing this, came to a proposition to, uh, to Lot. It says, um, so Genesis 13, starting from uh, verse 8, So Abraham said to Lot, Let's not have any quarreling between you and me, or between your herders and mine, for we are close relatives. Is not the whole land before you? Let's part, uh, let's part company. If you go to the left, I'll go to the right. If you go to the right, I'll go to the left. Lot looked around and saw, and the whole plain of the Jordan uh, towards Or was well watered. So Lot ends up choosing this one side from the two. But what this premise is, is that Abraham decided, okay, this is going to be the east, this is going to be the west, this is left, this is right. I made the division. You decide which path you want to go. And um, this is a concept known as I cut, you choose. And what this does is it eliminates the bias of Abraham making an unequitable cut. Now imagine I have a, a candy bar and me and you want to share it. Now we might dispute, okay, what's the best way to cut this? And if I cut it, you might say, no, you cut it unevenly. And a way to resolve this is you say, okay, one person cuts, the other person gets to choose which uh, piece they want. And what this does is it safeguards the person from uh, cutting in a way that's obviously biased because they know that, look, if I cut it where it's three quarters versus one quarter, uh, the other party is going to choose the bigger portion. So it's in our best interest that whoever's doing the cutting is going to try to be as equitable as possible because they know if they're not, they're the ones who are going to get the short end of the stick. And it's a way that you can construct a dispute that isn't going to uh, or at least minimize internal bias. And, um, Another example of this is uh, God tells us, you know, repeatedly in the Quran that we shall not bear false witness. Um, in uh, 4.135, it says, you shall not bear false witness. O you believe, you shall be absolutely equitable and observe God when you serve as witnesses, even against yourselves or your parents or your relatives, whether the accused is rich or poor, God takes care of both. Therefore, do not be biased by your personal wishes. If you deviate or disregard this commandment, then God is fully cognizant of everything you do. So this is a very strict commandment. It says, do not uh, bear false witness. Now, we all have uh, tendencies where we kind of self-justify, especially against ourselves or the people we uh, care for. Uh, we like to think that we're you know, better than we really are. We're more innovative. We're more clever. We're more thoughtful. We're more caring and uh, at the expense of other people. So how do you put a situation where you can reduce the amount of internal bias that someone has? And God gives us an example in uh, 5106 in regards to the witnessing of a will. It says, O you who believe, witnessing a will when one of you is dying shall be done by two equitable people among you. If you are traveling, then two others may do the witnessing. After observing the contact purse a lot, let the witnesses swear by God to alleviate your doubts we will not use this to attain personal gains, even if the testator is related to us, nor will we conceal God's testimony, otherwise we would be sinners. So God has done two things here that scientifically has been proven to reduce dishonesty in a testimony. Um, Dan Ariely, in uh, some studies around how people uh, you know, slightly lie in order to get the upper hand, uh, conducted some experiments where he gave people a test and... Um, he made it very easy to lie on the test. And what he wanted to do is how can you reduce the amount of lying? And what he found out was two things. One is if you had someone, in essence, uh, recite the, uh, the Ten Commandments, write down the Ten Commandments, the likeliness of them cheating on that test was severely diminished. 
The other aspect was having someone sign a contract, you know, an honor code of some sort, something he just kind of made up saying that, you know, uh, the students here are honest and trustworthy. and We don't lie, cheat or steal and this and that. And that was the second factor that uh, severely reduced the amount of dishonesty uh, cheating when someone uh, conducted was uh, conducting this experiment. And um, God is doing a similar thing. The first step that God is saying is after observing the contact prayers. So we know in the Quran that the purpose of observing the contact prayer is to be cognizant of God, you know, to be cognizant of God's qualities, what God expects from us. So we're remembering God. The second thing is that the witnesses, they, they swear, they say, we will not use this to attain personal gains, even if the testator is related to us, nor will we conceal God's testimony. Otherwise, we would be sinners. So they're making a declaration here, a proclamation saying that they're going to be honest. And this is priming them to be uh, conduct good behavior. And God goes one step further in 5107 and reads, If the witnesses are found to be guilty of bias, then two others shall be asked to take their places. Choose two persons who were victimized by the first witnesses, and let them swear by God our testimonies more truthful than theirs. We will not be biased. Otherwise, we will be transgressors. So what's going on here is God is putting another barrier to reduce the amount of personal bias because they know if their testimony ends up showing bias, that the people that are going to replace them are the ones that they were biased against. And chances are those are the people that they least want to have to be replaced with. So again, not only is God asking to observe the contact person a lot before witnessing, to make the declaration that they're going to be honest before witnessing, but also puts another safeguard there that's saying, look, if you're found to be biased, the consequences of that is the people you're biased against are going to replace you as the witnesses. So it's putting these uh, uh, these barriers around to guarantee to, to increase the probability of an equitable witness because it's inherent in us that despite the commandment, you shall not bear false witness, we have these inherent biases that we have to put in place to try to reduce. And um, how do you... The, one of the, the popular ways that this was done in the past, uh, it's something that's called trial by ordeal. And what this constituted was that people, they would say, look, if two people are, uh, one accuses, uh, so someone's accusing someone of something else, how do you tell who's the truthful party? And what they used to do is they would have them conduct certain tasks, and based on their performance of that task, uh, they would determine who the uh, the innocent party was and who was the uh, the guilty party. And some of these were pretty brutal. So they would have them walk on hot metals. And the idea was that if their feet didn't get burned or if they healed quickly, then uh, they were uh, innocent. And if they didn't, then they were guilty. And similarly, they would have them hold hot, uh, you know, like hot iron, uh, in, you know, for a duration of time. And they would look at the same thing to see if their hands were damaged. Or in the, the famous case, they would have people bound and thrown into water. And if they survived, then that means that, you know, God protected them. Uh, one of the funnier ones is they would have someone, they would have people hold their arms out. And they called it uh, trial by cross. And the first person to tire and put their arms down was the guilty party. Or they'd have them fight, you know, like a duel. And uh, whoever survived was the uh, the party that was considered innocent because they say, oh, they had the uh, uh, the hand of God in their favor. Now, I want to look at one specific one. This is from a documentary from National Geographic. And uh, I'm going to play a clip, and then, God willing, we're going to talk about it. Today in West Africa, most towns have official government courts. But in many criminal matters, local chiefs still rule supreme. And their tools of justice can be severe. 
In the village of Kabu, in northern Togo, two men are being called to trial. Not a trial by jury, but a trial by ordeal. My friend, I'm looking for you. Agba is a farmer and has accused another man of theft. Since the accused thief, Nikabu, denies the charge, he and Agba will soon plunge their hands into a pot of boiling oil. People here believe that the oil will burn the guilty, but leave the honest unscathed. It's an extreme form of justice, and both men are convinced it will work. We need the oil in order to know if he is a thief or not. If he didn't steal, then the fire will burn me. If it was up to me, we would have already resolved this with the oil. When we do the oil, the truth will come out. In Togo, a trial by boiling oil is only called for as a last resort. Since Agba accused Nikabu of theft, they must both go in front of the town elders and plead their case and see if oil is necessary. With no hard evidence and Nikabu's persistent denial of guilt, the judges turn to the oil. For both accuser and accused, a trial by oil is a measure of their conviction. Let's go. The oil has reached its final boiling point. The moment of truth is upon both men. Agba is first in line. He soaks his hand in the sacred herbs. Put your hand in the pot and then take out the ring. Without hesitation, Agba reaches into the oil and retrieves the ring. Immediate relief is close at hand. Unlike in a Western court, here the burden of proof rests on the accused and the accuser. Nikabu is next. His fear is apparent to all. Put your hand in. You say you are not guilty. Put your hand in. Face to face with the oil and the jeering crowd, Nikabu relents. Amazingly, this extreme ordeal has identified the thief. Are you guilty or aren't you? Okay, I'm guilty, I'm guilty. Bring us the yams that are left. Now, do you accept? Yes. For his crime, Nikabu must replace the stolen yams and pay a fine of $20, roughly a month's salary. Following tradition, he will also present the chief with a ram and a white cock. You, you have betrayed us. Chances are, Nikabu will think twice before stealing his friend's yams again. All right, what I really liked about this clip was the fact that, you know, you have two people, so one's accusing the other one of stealing their yams, and he's denying it. And uh, when they had to go through with the uh, trial by oil, so in this case they had a boil of uh, hot oil, and he had to reach in and grab this ring, um, that the uh, the guilty party, realizing that, look, okay, I'm guilty, <laughs> I stole the yams. They confess. They self-confess. They self-incriminate because they say, look, I'm going to go. I'm going to burn my hand and I'm going to have to read, uh, you know, pay back these guys for these yams I stole. So it's a way that you put a safeguard in there that they know that, look, if you really did do the crime, uh, not only is this going to serve as a deterrent, but now you're going to get hit twice because not only are you going to have to replace the yams, but you're also going to have to burn your hand. And what it does is allows people to self-incriminate and uh, eliminate themselves from this uh, uh, guessing game. And uh, yeah, you do have the possibility of uh, 
uh, uh, people uh, falsely uh, accusing themselves just because they don't want to get burned. But uh, it's it's an interesting point, and there's a similar phenomenon in the Quran that's done a lot more elegantly. In uh, 24.4, it says, Those who accuse married women of adultery then fail to produce four witnesses. You shall whip them 80 lashes and do not accept any testimony from them. They are wicked. If they repent afterwards and reform, then God is forgiver, merciful. Now, what's awesome about this is, just a quick note, the lashes are uh, symbolic, not severe. But that aside, is what this does is if someone is making a false testimony against someone, they're going to think twice because they realize that, look, if uh, uh, if I'm lying and I get caught, my punishment is going to be 80 lashes. And uh, it's, it eliminates people who are going to make false accusations, meaning that someone who's actually accusing a married person of adultery, they're going to do it because they realize the risk and they, they are uh, committed to the honesty of that testimony. And they're only going to do it if they have the witnesses, if they have the proof, uh, and not just willy-nilly. Um, this is actually a problem in a lot of the uh, the modern court system, predominantly in the U.S. Uh, Europe's different. But um, in the U.S., if I filed someone uh, a lawsuit, say a patent dispute, and it's totally frivolous, and uh, it ends up costing you know the other side millions of dollars, and I lose, and uh, nothing happens, you know? Uh, the other party's out millions of dollars, and uh, I just walk away, and uh, there is no uh, repercussions. And in uh, Europe, there's something that's called loser pays, meaning that if I make an accusation against someone and I end up losing that case, I might be liable for all their expenses and damages that I caused them uh, to have to fight that case. And it makes someone think twice before they're going to sue someone, that they have to have real credence, real uh, uh, proof that what they're doing is um, uh, holds merit. Because otherwise, uh, they could just go out and you see these people, they, they have frivolous lawsuits left and right, and there's no repercussions outside of their own time. If they're professional lawyers, then you know they know that most people are just going to settle out of court. And um, there's a, a similar phenomenon in the, uh, the Bible. This is from uh, Deuteronomy chapter 19, and it's in regards to someone who accuses someone of a, uh, a crime. And it says if the accuser ends up being uh, proven that they're lying, then their punishment is what the person that they accused punishment would have gotten. So, for instance, if I accuse someone of stealing $10,000 and they find out that I'm lying about that accusation, my punishment would be not only that fine of the $10,000, but whatever else uh, compensation would have been onto that victim that I made that accusation on. So, again, it puts a safeguard in there that if someone's going to make a testimony, is going to make an accusation, that they're going to be, uh, A, telling the truth, that they're going to have the evidence to back it up, uh, and it's not going to be done frivolously. And um, the end goal is to how do you have a society that is, in essence, trustless, where the laws are in place, where the, the consequences of giving a false testimony, of lying, of cheating, of uh, being deceitful, is going to be so great that it's going to eliminate people of doing that because they're not worried about repercussions. And um, there's an interesting example in the Quran. It's in 60 verse 10. Uh, and this is in regards to the time of war. It says, Oh, you believe when believing women abandon the enemy to ask asylum uh, with you, you shall test them. God is fully aware of their belief. Once you establish that they are believers, you shall not return them to the disbelievers. And this expression, you shall test them. How do you test them? You know, do you give them a, a, a booklet with some uh, questions on there and you uh, <laughs> and they have to answer correctly? No, you want people to, in essence, self-incriminate, uh, expose themselves, uh, put them in a situation where their true colors come out. And uh, I'm going to play another uh, uh, clip 
This is in regards to a judgment that Solomon gave. It's in the, uh, the Bible, and then God willing, we'll talk about it. My Lord King, this woman, Leah and I, dwell within the same house. I was delivered of a child. On the third day after I was delivered, she was delivered also. There was no one in the house but we two. In the night, this woman's child died because she lay upon it. Wherefore, she removed my son from beside me while I slept and laid her dead child against my bosom. She lies. I do not lie. And when I rose in the morning to nurse my child, he was dead. Not so, Lord Solomon. The truth, Lord King. For when I looked at the child in my arms, I knew it was not the son that I did bear. It was her own child and none other. The living child is mine. The dead is yours. The dead is yours. The living mine. Bring the infant forward. Josiah. Place the child on the steps before me and show him to me. Draw your sword, Josiah. Divide the child into two parts. Give half to the one woman, half to the other. Oh, no! If it must be, give the child to her that it may not be slain. Divide it. It shall be neither hers nor mine. Take your son, mother, for he is surely yours. May the Lord God Jehovah praise and bless you. You would rather have surrendered him to another than to seem harmed. And take this woman hence and administer to her punishment to fit her perjury. She lies! She lies! It's not right! The child is mine! Mine! All right, we're back. So I love that uh, that example. You know, here's someone who's claiming that you know you have two mothers claiming that hey the 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 baby is mine, and uh, the way that Solomon resolves this uh, is saying okay, well let's cut the baby in half. You know, it seems ludicrous. He knows he's not going to carry you through with the act, but that act that aspect making that kind of judgment exposes the true person who is the real mother and the person who is lying. And it's how do you put these situations in place where someone's true colors come out. So when I think in regards to how do you create a, a test, how do you uh, validate an argument, decide who's telling the truth and who's not, is how do you conduct it in such a way that the person is going to self-incriminate, self-expose themselves, uh, and it eliminates our own personal bias. And um, it makes me think in regards to uh, David's uh, judgment and uh, with the the brothers and the one sheep and the nine nine sheep, maybe there could have been a judgment he could have done, where the uh, if the brother was being deceitful, if the brother was uh, had the intention of just stealing the other brother's one sheep, uh, that he could be exposed for what he was. Um, 
And it just makes me think that there is ways that, you know, we can uh, render these judgments where the amount of judgment that's needed is reduced because, again, people self-identify, they self-incriminate. And one of the, uh, the, the absolute essentials of any society is this aspect of being truthful. And um, the reality is most people aren't going to be truthful. Well, I take that back. There's going to be a portion of society that are not going to be truthful. Uh, maybe they're misinformed, they're ignorant, or maybe they're straight up deceitful. And it's our responsibility that we, uh, uh, we, we try to identify and learn and pull the truth. And chapter 17, verse 36 says, uh, Crucial advice, you shall not accept any information unless you verify it for yourself. I have given you the hearing, the eyesight, and the brain, and you're responsible for using them. So God is saying it's our responsibility that if someone gives us information, we have to verify it. If we're going to make a judgment on it, if we're going to make a uh, uh, some sort of a opinion based on it, we have to make sure that the information we got is credible. In 49.6, it says, investigate rumors before believing them. It says, oh, you who believe, if a wicked person brings any news to you, you shall first investigate Lest you commit injustice towards some people out of ignorance, then become sorry and remorseful for what you have done. And uh, you hear all this thing, you know, fake news. <laughs> but the aspect is the responsibility is on us. Yes, the person who brought the false information, they bear uh, responsibility. But at the end of the day, God has given us the hearing, the eyesight, and the brain, and we're responsible for using them. And all this, you know, it uh, at the end of the day, for someone who's a believer, it has to do with this aspect that we trust in God. Uh, that we fear God, that we know that, look, we're not doing this for the benefit of uh, anyone else other than to please God. Because at the end of the day, we might be able to trick the people, but we're never going to be able to trick God. And um, in uh, Proverbs chapter 9 says, Give instruction to the wise man and he will still be wiser. Teach a righteous man and he will increase his learning. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. And this concept that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Someone who doesn't fear God uh, has no remorse in conducting acts that he thinks that they can get away with. Because who's to hold them responsible? If I could, in essence, get an upper hand and I feel like I haven't victimized anyone, no one knows about the act, it's just between myself and myself because, you know, if I'm someone who doesn't believe in God, then that really destroys the fabric of society. And uh, Stephen Molyneux, he uh, has the uh, largest uh, philosophy uh, podcast, really interesting guy. Uh, I r recently heard him on an interview, and he was talking about, you know, he uh, was hardcore atheist before, and he's realizing a lot of these ideologies are absolutely detrimental because they're destroying the fabric of society. And in 873, it says, those who disbelieve are allies with one another. Unless you keep these commandments, there will be chaos on earth and a terrible corruption. So God is telling us that, look, it's our duty to keep these commandments. And um, one of the, the, the duties we have is to keep our word. In 1691, says, uh, You shall fulfill your covenant with God when you make such a covenant. You shall not violate the oaths after swearing by God to carry them out. For you have made God a guarantor for you. God knows everything you do. Do not be like the knitter who unravels her strong knitting into piles of flimsy yarn. This is your example. If you abuse the oaths to take advantage of one another, whether one group is larger than the other, God thus puts you to the test. He will surely show you on the day of resurrection everything you had disputed. Had God willed, he could have made you one congregation, but he sends astray whoever chooses to go astray, and he guides whoever wishes to be guided. You will surely be asked about everything you have done. So God is saying, look, do this for your own sake and trust that God is the one who's going to keep the records. Don't worry about you know the, the people of this world um, uh, 
the, the putting you in prison and this and that. That's not the real fear. The fear is that God, if you uh, don't make it into God's kingdom, if you uh, invoke God's retribution, if you make it to hell, this is a far worse punishment. In uh, 1694, it reads, Do not abuse the oaths among you lest you slide back after attaining uh, a strong foothold. Then you incur misery, such as the consequences for repelling from the path of God by setting a bad example. You incur a terrible retribution. So the person we need to fear by uh, being deceitful, by lying, by cheating, isn't the external parties, isn't our parents, isn't our loved ones, it's God. You know, God could obviously send retribution through these individuals, but God is the one who's holding that ultimate record. And the people who don't realize that, uh, they're going to be thinking that they're going to get the upper hand. And God says in the Quran that, you know, they scheme, but to God belongs the best scheme. And um, an example of this is in 24.6 and continues on in the theme of adultery. It says, as for those who accuse their own spouses without any other witnesses, then the testimony may be accepted if he swears by God four times that he is telling the truth. The fifth oath shall be to incur God's condemnation upon him if he was lying. She shall be considered innocent if she swears by God four times that he is a liar. The fifth oath shall incur God's wrath upon her if he was telling the truth. This is God's grace and mercy towards you. God is redeemer, most wise. So this is saying, look, both parties in the eyes of the people might be considered innocent. But if someone truly believes in God, they're not going to make that fifth oath because they would be more scared of God's retribution than the retribution of the uh, the people. And the reality is if they do, if they lie and uh, to please the people, they fear the people more than they fear God, that they make that fifth oath and they incur God's wrath upon the liars, all that's happening is that they've sealed the deal. There's no way we're going to get out of one atom's weight of uh, sin that we've incurred. Uh, th- unless we repent, we reform. Uh, it's something that's it's on our record. And in 6411, it says, Divine law, nothing happens to you except in accordance with God's will. Anyone who believes in God, he will guide his heart. God is fully aware of all things. And uh, when we're in God's path, when we're in God's uh, kingdom, we don't fear what's going to happen by the people you know we we do our utmost to please god because god is the one who holds all the cards god is the one who's going to uh exalt people or bring them down and it's up to us if we please god then god takes care of everything else in 554 it says oh you believe if you revert from your religion then god will substitute in your place people whom he loves and who love him they'll be kind with the believers stern with the disbelievers and will strive in the cause of god without fear of any blame such as god's blessings he bestows it upon whomever he wills God is bounteous, omniscient. All right, so this is all, you know, great when um, you're dealing with people who are uh, have high moral integrity, they're trying to be equitable, they're following the, uh, the verse of the Quran, but obviously a lot of the people who are going to be uh, resolving disputes, they're not going to be uh, uh, of this precedent. Uh, they might have their own internal bias, they might uh, think that's a good thing, and um, be rendering judgments. So how do we deal in those situations? God tells us uh, repeatedly in the Bible and in the Quran that uh, if we're in God's kingdom, that nothing bad will happen to us. Uh, We know for a fact that uh, nothing bad happens to good people. And good means someone who's abiding by God's laws, meaning that anything that happens in that person's life is ultimately for their good. In Psalm 91, it says, 
If you say, the Lord is my refuge, and you make the most high your dwelling, no harm will overtake you. No disaster will come near your tent, for he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. They lift you up, lest your foot dashes against the stone. You will tread on the lion and the cobra. You will trample the great lion and the serpent. Meaning that when God puts his servants, uh, his angels in command of you, nothing will happen to you. And this is confirmed in the Quran in 3174. It says they have deserved God's blessings and grace. No harm ever touches them, for they have attained God's approval. God possesses infinite grace. And we have numerous examples of this where people, they were uh, misjudged. Uh, they were thrown into the, uh, the path of harm, and God protected them. Uh, the classic cases of uh, Abraham in uh, 3791 through uh, 98, it reads, He then turned to, uh, on their idols, saying, Would you like to eat? Why do you not speak? Then he destroyed them. So Abraham destroyed the idols. They went to him in a great rage. He said, How can you worship what you carve uh, when God has created you and everything you make? They said, Let us build a great fire and throw him into it. They schemed against him, but we made them the losers. And we know from uh, chapter 29 that the uh, fire did not burn Abraham, uh, that he was uh, unscathed. And um, similarly, uh, in the uh, the Bible, in the book of Daniel, in chapter 6, uh, uh, some conspirators uh, try to uh, get Daniel killed by uh, having him uh, uh, disobey uh, a law uh, that was instituted to uh, get him to be uh, punished by death. And the death was supposed to be in the uh, lion's den. So Daniel was sent to the lion's den, and uh, God protected him and closed the mouth of the lion uh, so they didn't do him any harm. And when the uh, co uh, conspirators were thrown in, uh, they were devoured by the lions. And um, we have another example in the uh, book of Daniel in uh, chapter 3 where uh, Nebuchadnezzar made a statue and commanded everyone to worship the statue. And the uh, three followers of uh, Daniel's, uh, Daniel refused, and um, they were uh, also thrown in, into the fire. And uh, God protected them, and to the point that their uh, uh, clothes didn't even smell like smoke. And we see this uh, in the uh, the Quran as well. In chapter 85, it reads, In the name of God, most gracious, most merciful, the sky and its galaxies, the promised day, the witnesses and the witnessed, woe to the people of the canyon. They lighted a blazing fire and sat around it to watch the burning of the believers. They hated them for no other reason than believing in God, the Almighty, the praiseworthy. To him belong the kingship, the heavens and the earth, and God witnesses all things. Surely those who persecute the believing men and women then fail to repent have incurred the retribution of Gehenna. They have incurred the retribution of burning. Surely those who believe and lead a righteous life have deserved gardens with flowing streams. This is the greatest triumph. So we see here it's another incident where, you know, people were thrown into the fire and uh, by God's leave they were uh, protected and saved. And, um, uh, we see this also in the case of uh, Joseph. Uh, Joseph, uh, you know, he was uh, accused of uh, molesting the uh, governor's wife. The first time he was uh, absolved, and then the second time he's actually thrown in prison. That despite that, you know, that was the uh, path he had to go to become the highest ranking children of Israel in all of Egypt, uh, second to the Pharaoh at the time. And, um, you know, uh, God says in the Quran, they scheme, but to God belongs the best schemes. That despite this, if we trust in God, we do what God expects from us. We don't fear any blame. We don't fear uh, the consequence of the people. The people we try to, the only person we try to please is God. And if we have God's blessings, then uh, that's all we need. Uh, that protects us both in this life and in the hereafter. God willing, we're going to end there. If you guys got comments or questions, hit us up at crontalk at gmail.com. And until next time, peace and God bless.